Hello, Acquired LPs and readers of Not Boring and The Generalist. So Ben, Mario, Packy, and I have been longtime fans of each other's work and have the great pleasure of becoming friends through a couple great recent collaborations like our Slack emergency episode with Packy and our Roblox DPO preview with Mario. And given all the recent buzz on new audio platforms like Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces, we all decided to team up and run a little experiment, the Idea Dinner. So last night on Twitter Spaces, we all got together and brought one beverage of choice, one public market idea, public market investment idea, and one private market investment idea. And honestly, despite some technical audio issues, which you will hear in the audio to come, we had a blast. It's always super fun collaborating with other creators we respect. And given that we all come at the business tech world from different angles, I think we were able to push each other's thinking in new ways. Uh, So fortunately... We also hit the record buttons on our end before we started, and Superhero Ben has stitched it all together so we can share it with all of you who couldn't make it. Please bear with the audio quality. Uh, This was done live over what is very much still a beta product, as we found out. Uh, So it does not have anywhere near the normal level, level of editing and polish that acquired Not Boring and Generalist fans are accustomed to. But... It was a total blast. We had a great time making it, and we hope you all enjoy it too. Stay tuned for more to come. Uh, I'm drinking Costco fake champagne. How about you guys? I mean, we'll go in order order of classiness. Um, so I'm, I'm really <laughs> taking the, the man of the people approach, straightforward ideas, and we're drinking White Claw. I'm down in Florida right now, so I figured it was the appropriate level of class. And uh, for for folks joining, uh, I mean, it's exactly as you'd imagine. It's just you know deals happening <laughs> left and right. How many cafecitos have you had? I mean, it's term sheets and cafecitos are in a neck and neck race for me right now. But. Berries, cafecitos, and and uncapped notes. Exactly. Well, uh, so I was asking Packy before if he was tipping his hand with the uh, with the idea that he'll be sharing tonight by drinking a white law white claw because the uh, let me look up the name of this company Arda Metal Packaging, who is the uh, manufacturer of the aluminum for the cans of white claw, just got spacked uh, by. Who did the SPAC? Gores. It was one of the the Gores holdings. I think G-H-V-I-U, if I remember correctly. Or G-H-I-V-U. And... uh, They couldn't get claw. Oh. That's what will happen when they they, they merge. Yeah, when they SPAC. That'd be pretty funny. Let's see if we can get claw. That business does... White Claw, I think, does, as of pre-pandemic, was doing $4 billion in revenue a year. So... Uh, White Claw is a very, in the holding company that owns White Claw is a very legitimate SPAC candidate. But for everybody out in the audience who doesn't know this, if you've heard the Acquired podcast, you think David and Ben are fancy and smart and talk about, you know, big, legitimate, (laughs) old companies. Ben is our resident SPAC expert. Every morning wakes up, checks the SPACs. Ben, you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on in the SPAC world? Uh, I do. And I was planning to save this caveat for later, but I guess we're going to have to throw the caveat in now. This is not investment advice. We may hold 
I don't know, the, the securities that we, we may hold the things that we're talking about here. So everybody be warned. Um, yeah, SPACs are fascinating because they have downside protection because they're backed by the money in the trust, which actually is in, I think, most of the time in the, in the Cayman Islands. Uh, but they can go up. And so as long as you buy them pretty cheap and close to the value of the cash and trust, so long as you believe that there's not fraud happening and, you know, that that cash pile isn't going to go away somewhere, there could be random unexpected asymmetric upside that happens like a pop when uh, a SPAC, you know, de-SPACs. Um, however, so far, and we are in uh, unprecedented times, as they say, uh, it's been a reasonably downside protected asset. So, uh, yes, it has been very interesting to, uh, to watch the SPAC pops and, um, and, you know, see how you can play that. It's the definition of stocks only go up structurally. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, but one more note on that, that white clock comment from earlier, uh, they have done very well this year. Uh, so I was sort of wondering like, um, would people being home, uh, you know, inhibit them as, as they tend to be very uh, popular among social gatherings, but uh, people are just fine drinking them in their houses. And uh, it's been a great year for the White Claw Company. Popular among the youths. As they say, as they say, Rosenthal, yeah. what are you drinking? I am drinking. So as you guys know, so I think we're going to, are we going to vote on, are we going to have the audience vote on, um, our, our beverage choices as well here. I think, I think this is all up for uh, as like a warm up voting system. So I think so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, uh, I guess we'll, I think we'll have to save it all for the end when we're going to bring folks up on after we go through all our picks. So everybody, you know, everybody's judging all the time and then we'll discuss at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you know, I'm focused on finding value and I am drinking literally the best God. value in one. This is so insulting. In just listen to you. I'm, I'm really focused on finding value. <laughs> uh, that's good. No, I am drinking uh, Michelle Schlumberger 2018 Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. Uh, this is great. Michelle Schlumberger, great winery in Sonoma, has gotten Jenny and me through the pandemic because for... Um, on their email list, they run these specials like every couple months or so where they sell cases of like leftovers. So you get leftover reds, leftover whites, like, you know, 30, $40 a bottle wines that I think we got this one for 150 bucks for the case. So that's $12 and 50 cents per bottle. Uh, and I think we ordered like three cases and I think it's gotten us through the whole pandemic. So it's, Guys, I thought we said no no sponsorships. (laughs) (laughs) You can go sign up for their email newsletter at (laughs) acquire.fm slash uh, something or other. Michelle Slumberger, yeah. That's what I'm drinking. What about you, Mario? All right. I'm going to attempt to class this group of of degenerates up with what I uh, could find was the, the swankiest bottle of whiskey I could find at my local store, which is called... Virgil Kane, and it is a ribbon rail rye, um, and I'm I'm enjoying it very much so far. Um, and uh, th- that's all I have for you. And did you did you walk inside a, a real store to uh, to purchase this this fine whiskey? I did. It was uh, me and a gentleman at about three in the afternoon. Uh, full disclosure, I initially said, "Do you have Woodford Reserve?" Because it's mm. a name I know and enjoy. <laughs> he said, "No." And uh, then I was like, what, what's kind of similar to Woodford Reserve? 
And then he was like, oh, you should get this one. And I had that awkward moment that you all have at like a restaurant where you're like, oh, what do you recommend? And they recommend something. You're like, cool, I'm not going to get that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get something else. Um, and uh, yeah, so I went with this. Mostly, I would say probably because of the, the typeface. So really a, That's great. a discerning Literally buyer. Here. Judging the and, book by its cover. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of a good preface for the rest of the choices I'm going to give tonight, which are very aesthetically driven, shallow. Um, Unlike David's uh, no, no value, picks. value that uh, that he's finding that the rest of us are apparently not focused on. <laughs> Me and Roaring Kitty. Yes. All right. Well, what, let's go around the horn real quick. Who, who is everyone, and uh, and and what are we doing here? Um, I'll start. I'm I'm uh, Ben Gilbert, one half of the Acquired Podcast Duo, um, with uh, with David here. And uh, by day, I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs and an investor at PSL Ventures, our early stage venture fund. And uh, I come to you tonight bearing one one private and one public idea of companies. Uh, I think we're picking companies we think will go up. Is the general. The general idea. At least that's oh, yeah, what I went for. You guys didn't tell me that. Uh, David, complete the half, and then we'll we'll go around the horn to Mario. I am the other half of the acquired duo, and technically the only one of the four of us who has Twitter Spaces access. So Oof. I think you weren't supposed to give that away. <laughs> uh, Spaces team, if you're listening, I know uh, Packy, you've been waging a campaign. <laughs> <laughs> to no avail. <laughs> to no avail. Um, I'm a, uh, let's see, I've done lots of things. I've been a VC for a long time, but currently I am uh, one half of the acquired duo and an angel investor. Great. Mario? Love it. Um, <clears throat> I just took a large sip. That was a uh, bad timing. Uh, my name is Mario. I run The Generalist, which is a publication that covers tech from uh, idea to IPO, as I insist on saying. Um, and uh, that includes S1 clubs and and uh, Friday startup ideas and uh, weekly sort of essays and stuff. So uh, yeah, that's about it. And I get to collaborate with these guys a lot. So got to jam with the acquired folks on a Roblox pod and Packy and I, Packy's probably my most, I don't know, frequent collaborator, definitely up there. I think the same, same goes for me. Yeah, read read the generalist. Listen to acquired. Uh, my name is Packy McCormick. Uh, I write a newsletter called Not Boring, also about private and public tech companies. So I think we should be in. Uh, you know, this is this is my my environment today. Um, so excited to be here with all of you. Do a little bit of that, a little bit of early stage investing. If you don't think that I'm going to pump the portfolio with my private picks, then <laughs> you haven't been reading Not Boring, but you should at notboring.co. <laughs> Coming yeah, so with we, that we, Miami energy. We were like debating, do we, are we talking our own books tonight? Or are we uh, hyping our own picks? Uh, I at least, I don't know about you guys, but I stayed away. It felt, felt too incestuous to literally just pick companies I've actually in, invested in um, privately, but I definitely didn't shy away from, from companies we've covered uh, on Acquired because that would disqualify like 150 really good companies that I didn't want to, didn't want to disqualify. That seems fair. I wish I had a book to talk, all of you angel investors and VCs out here. Well, I, so I was I was wondering about the the idea dinner. So obviously, like uh, you know, this is like a a thing. I at least know about it from watching Billions. Um, do people talk their own book there? Is the whole thing like show up and then try and convince someone to foolishly take the other side of your trade and then short squeeze them, or, or how's this work to, for someone who's ever dabbled in public equities for real? Tell me about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think literally that's that is the idea. I think everybody shows up with their best idea. I think it's less trying to get another idiot to take the other side and more <laughs> trying to kind of get the weight of the industry to the extent that there is, you know, collusion in the markets working together. I think this is one of the the vehicles for that. But it's also, as we're doing, an opportunity to get together, drink, hang out with friends, and of course, pump your own stocks. <laughs> and I think also uh, for our idea at dinner, at least I would posit uh chance to get feedback on the ideas we all got some well said. great analysts here that we can pick apart each other's theses that's great i think that's dead on that's great well i i would say that uh you know the most the person who came out the strongest with the largest assertion that that they're here really really to identify value should be the one that sort of has to open Uh, and they can choose whether we're starting public or whether we're we're starting private but um you know it's good because i'm i have high expectations for for either one here okay okay uh i assume you're talking about me i yes of course (laughs) um mr value mr value (laughs) okay uh i think should we uh, let's start public first because uh, I think that'll be maybe the more robust discussion that we can pick apart the ideas and then and then move into private. Okay, so a little bit of history and facts. We're going to go back. We're going to start about a month ago on Acquired. No, uh, that actually is where we're going to start. But um, okay, so how uh, one of the motivations, I think, for me in wanting to do this is that um, the pandemic over the past year has just uh, taught me some like serious lessons about investing uh, the hard way. Um, and in particular, I really debated... So I had three ideas that I was debating coming into this. Uh, one, I'll say the two I didn't do. One was Spotify, um, which uh, especially I was just blown away by their stream on event this uh, this past week. I was Ben and I were texting the whole time. It was just like, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the podcast ecosystem, what it means for acquired more broadly, starting companies around it. And just like Spotify is executing on every level in podcasting that I don't see any private or, you know, fan companies out there doing. Um, so that was one thought I had. The second thought was um, my biggest mistake of the pandemic, which was Square. I was from way back, what was it, Ben? 2015, we did our no, episode on Square. 2017, no, maybe? 2017, yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. Um, 20, it was either 2016 or 2017. I might have been late 2016. It, it, was, it was definitely post-IPO, uh, but before it became a meme stunk. Yeah, it was at, I think it was trading at about eight bucks a share when we did that. And I picked it up and it became, I think it was one of, if not my top performing holding after that episode. I loved it. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh my God, I can't hold this anymore if, you know, the whole thesis, small business retail is like going to zero. So I sold it 60 bucks a share and I completely ignored Cash App and, Oh, huge, huge mistake. Huge mistakes. That was the second one I was thinking about. Um, But I think when I zoom out, the biggest lesson that I've learned over the past year in investing is, uh, well, maybe two lessons. One, 
don't overthink things because uh, I way overthought stuff around Square. But then two, just like winners can go so much farther than you imagine. So all of that brings me to, can you guys guess? Wait, before we say that, I I think doesn't Packy have some sort of trademark on winners can go so much further than you imagine? Like I feel like uh, what what was what was the title of your blog post last week? That was dreams all the way up. So dreams pretty close. all the way up. Yeah, which which for the uninitiated was that at least my paraphrase. Uh, these tech companies are so much more valuable than we ever thought that they could be. That gosh, isn't it realistic to actually value companies on the probability that they too could become a trillion and a half or two trillion dollar company? Is that is that about right? <laughs> when I hear it from somebody else, it sounds way dumber than when I was writing it in my own head. But <laughs> no, no super, but yeah, that is yeah. that is certainly the idea, right? That that there are big fang companies that are fairly valued and. Everything else, whether it makes sense or not, seems to be at least valued more off of a probability that they can break that one, two trillion dollar mark or get to some percentage of it than on, you know, a price to sales or certainly a price to earnings ratio. Cool. All right, David, sorry for that interruption, it, <laughs> no, but, no, no. but had, had to go down that path. Very, elo- very eloquent interruption. Um, so Bitcoin is my pick. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like obvious it's the safe bed. It's not, I'm not coming in here with something that obviously not everybody is thinking about, but I just look at this and I'm like, you know, when I look at a stock, I'm like stock or an asset, like, can this still get 10 X bigger? Yes. If you realize, you know, we spent three plus hours talking about this, me and Ben in in January (laughs) on acquired, if you just look at the gold thesis, the gold thesis is like nine X market cap of yeah. gold is 9 trillion market cap of Bitcoin right now is 1 trillion. Um, that's nine X. But then I just look at all these companies holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets. And I mean, I think that's the path to the gold thesis, but then there's the reserve currency thesis on top of that, which is another 10 X on top of that. So you're basically full- saying like it, 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 even if if Bitcoin eats gold, it still yeah. has an order of magnitude has- and and then even if it doesn't become a reserve currency, like it still has this 10x of running room and the knock it out of the park on top of that is it becomes a reserve currency and you could yeah, go even higher than yeah. that. So as I look out on the landscape of like fully liquid <laughs> uh public securities out there um, and think about what has a hundred X upside 10 X plus times 10 X upside. I just, I can't come up with anything better than Bitcoin right now as hot as it is. I wonder if any of us are going to disagree here, which I wonder, like, I feel like we're all pretty Bitcoin bullish. Packy's ready to come at me. I've run the the cash flow models. Uh, I've done the DCF <laughs> on Bitcoin, and I'm having yeah. just the hardest time squaring what I see there. So, what, what, what does the DCF on Bitcoin look like? Can Can you just tell me like uh, just some of the inputs? Yeah, it's it's. Uh... No, there are no inputs, David. How do you? <laughs> okay, fair point. Fair point. Um, but my rebuttal, which I tried to land on the episode and I don't think I did well enough, is that 
what Bitcoin is, is the product of the work of miners. Literally, Bitcoins are created by miners for verifying transactions and the robustness of the system. It's like um, child, as in child labor? Is that a joke or is there some news about Bitcoin mining? That <laughs> no, no, like M-I-N-O-R-S as opposed to M-I-N-E-R-S. Oh. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> M-I-N-E-R-S. Uh, and so every Bitcoin is payment for mining and that is work and there's value to that work. So I would say like... So the, it, the value of that Bitcoin the, the is DCF, all the carbon the future. put into the... <laughs> but 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 actually, seriously, like yeah, it, is, it, actually, is, yes. it is the value yeah. of all the energy that was consumed to verify yes. that transaction. And the DCF is, you know, because it's all one system and all Bitcoins are fungible... Uh, by the way, I'm expecting some some NFT talk from you guys later. Um, the future amount of work and energy and carbon that is going to be put into Bitcoin is captured on a discounted level back to the value of Bitcoin today. Hmm. <laughs> There's so much here. Like it's the the one other point I do want to like bring up. Uh, as we talk about, if we're, especially if we're picking companies that we believe will get more value, valuable, the the nice thing about companies is they're tied to the intrinsic value of the you know future claims on their profits, the the sum of all future cash flows. the The thing about currencies is that there is no intrinsic value. Literally, the point is that it's not backed by an underlying value, and the entire value that we give it is the greater fool theory, is that someone will f- buy it from you in the future at the same or or maybe a higher price. You know, Higher if it's an appreciating asset, the same if it's an actual stable currency. Um, and I always like this argument where people are like, well, it's backed by nothing. And you're like, yeah, like... It is the everlasting bubble. That is what currencies are. That having a reserve currency, a fiat currency by the government is extra nice because it's backed by the full faith of the government. But for a currency to be successful, the whole point is that it's not necessarily backed by an intrinsic value. Otherwise, we'd all just be going and using stocks as if they were currencies. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, that is where we are in 2020. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to make the point, like, like if, of course, for Bitcoin, but it is interesting in having this discussion right now um, when the prices that people are willing to pay for, you know, these corporate assets also seem to be wildly de- decoupled and in some cases extremely decoupled from the the um, possible future cash flows that 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 uh, company could generate. So that uh, that made it especially difficult to pick ones tonight you're like okay are we gonna pick stuff that's gonna become a meme stonk and go up in the next few days or are we picking something where we're like hey we think the next 10 years they're gonna build a really strong and defensible business because uh you know the the latter may actually not appreciate in value in in the near future in a way that you would hope that it would well it feels like in that respect david's sort of like getting the perfect middle it's both meme and you know generational long-term view. I mean, everything (laughs) I remember in sort of like 2015, 16, when I first got into Bitcoin, I was like trying to do a little bit of day trading version of it. And you just get like massacred so fast. And so (laughs) um, now I'm just like, cool. I own what I own. I still like do some, you know, dollar cost averaging in and yeah, I'll buy the dip and, and then I'll touch it. I mean, really don't do anything else. The other thing that I feel like people uh, aren't talking about enough right now is um, 
for most people, you know, unless you're really like running your own wallet and doing a lot of it yourself, the fees for trading Bitcoin on yes. all platforms are super high. Cash app. I was going to ask where you where you buy it. I, I actually just buy on Cash App, which I know is not efficient, mm. but it's so easy. By the way, I, I I bought some on Robinhood for the first time um, earlier this week because I I use Coinbase Pro normally, but I wanted to check it out. Somehow it's there's no fees, but I also don't think you have a real crypto wallet. So I think what's happening at Robinhood is they actually just hold all the Bitcoin in one Robinhood owned crypto wallet mm. and then it's effectively like an internal little ledger or balance sheet that they sort of create for all the accounts so you really do just have an entry in the database Ooh. that's then pegged to the value at least uh, i don't know how else they could do this no transaction fee thing for cryptocurrencies because there is literal work involved to do the transaction that you do have to pay for and so uh, that's the only thing i can kind of kind of figure i don't know if any of you know something that that i don't about uh how Robin Hood's system set up. No, but let's get Vlad for next week. Uh, <laughs> this is, he's on the circuit. is the only podcast that he hasn't done at this point. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's move on. David, are you classifying that as your public or your private? So we know where that's to what, go That's my here. public. That's your public, okay. Yeah. Got it. That seems fair. All right, well, let's break David and I. Uh, Mario, you're next. Cool. Um, all right, well... I'm definitely going in the more sort of hipster route with this pick, um, which is the Bridgetown SPAC, which is Peter Thiel and Richard Lee's SPAC. I, they have two of them right now. There's there's Bridgetown and Bridgetown 2 and potentially a Bridgetown 3 coming down the pike. Uh. Um, and the reason I'm excited about it is sort of two, two reasons, right? Like one the volume of SPACs targeting Asia is still like so, so, so much lower than, than SPAC targets in the U.S. I think it's something like 85% of SPACs are you know, U.S. focused versus 5% in Asia. Um, these are expressly focused on finding targets in Southeast Asia. So that's sort of the, the high level idea. That market is just... And as, as you guys know, because I've been like tweeting aggressively about it and writing pieces about Indonesia, and, <laughs> as you know, I've like been sort of going down this rabbit hole. But um, the region in general, like Southeast and Asian nations, population of 649 million, nominal GDP of 3 trillion and growing 5.4% per annum. But the internet population is like expected to, I think it's triple in the next, uh, uh, the inter like internet economy, let's say, um, is expected to triple over the next six years. Um, wow. Reaching 300 billion by 2025. Uh, and then, you know, obviously sort of demographic trends, huge number of people are sort of entering this period of when they're going to be. Uh, you know, having a mobile phone, buying online, having a job, all of these sort of things. So I think there's sort of this like broad uh, geographic mm -hmm. tailwind story that you can tell. I was going to say, and, and, the and the best way that you are deciding to play this, this sort of secular trend is to buy one single SPAC targeting a company there. <laughs> riddle, me, riddle me that. How are you picking that? Because I am not a better picker than Peter Thiel <laughs> and Richard Lee. <laughs> I mean, look, for all of the uh, noxiousness of, of some of Peter Thiel's politics, I think he's one of the best pickers of all time um, and probably one of the like smartest living people. Um, 
And I think combine him with the um, it, one, the expertise, but also the network of Richard Lee, who is uh, Cushing Lee's son. Um, and who's Cushing Lee? They have like a bunch uh, Hong Kong billionaire. Made um, his money in telecom, teach. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think. I think Richard Lee's money is also like building on that with Star TV, which was like a, a television network. Um, but all to say, I think they're going to have incredible access um, and incredible pickers uh, on this. And then the sort of final point Wait, sorry, I'll one, say is that one point on Lee Cushing was it his investment vehicle that invested in and then sold the ten cent stake early. Oh. You know, Packy, I don't know, but I suspect you might be. remind me. That Somebody on this call should know this. It was I some recognize gen- the name. Uh, let's look it up. And I, I feel like I recognize the name because I remember David telling me that it was. Uh, if there's somebody who either did really well or did really poorly on Tencent, then David would have told me yeah. about it. Yes, it, it is. is. You're right. Wow. Nice oh, call, no, no. Packy. Wow. It's... it's uh... So, so you're saying maybe that like you shouldn't outsource your decision making to to Lee Kashing? Oh, it no, it well, was Richard is... Lee. Oh, oh no! no. <laughs> the worst call of all time. Oh no! New data coming in on draft day. <laughs> this, this is hot stuff. Um, listen, guys, I, I'm quick. Fall I'm back, really just to Peter Thiel. Here. Fall back. Fall back. <laughs> no, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> listen. Daniel Wong is leading it. He's he's also part of the Pacific Century crew. You have uh, the head of, of private investments of Teal Capital allocated five hundred and fifty million across South Korea and Southeast Asia. They're good people on board. Sam Altman is involved. Who knows how he's getting in there? But you know he'll he'll take a look at whatever they're checking out. Um, and anyway, final point I'll say is that I like the two targets that they've been sort of around the hoop. On um, how are you finding that out? Seems is it is it like is it was there a journalist that sort of said here's the two that they're rumored to be targeting? Do you remember how I said Bill Gates was sort of pissed off at me earlier, and that's why um, he had the competitive Sam clubhouse to I him? See. Yeah, I see. Um, um, yeah. There's just been in the news. There's been like actually, I think it's all been or majority Bloomberg coverage on it. Um, so. Traveloka, which is the sort of like largest travel website in Southeast Asia, has chosen to go to SPAC with like a JP Morgan vehicle. Um, but that was one that they were sort of around the loop on, which I thought was interesting. And then the one that I really hope happens is Tokopedia, which is you know large e-commerce player mm. uh, in Indonesia, potentially merging with Gojek. Uh, we'll see if like the SPAC is dependent on that deal falling apart. I'm not really sure. Um, but all to say, these are trading at like 12 bucks or something like that. Um, and I think there's a lot of upside left. All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll come in with my SPAC hot take here. There's a couple things. Um, one, for those of you buying SPACs in Fidelity, you do have the privilege of paying a $50 foreign transaction fee, uh, uh, unlike picking domestic stocks or, or SPACs. Um, to to make a purchase of Bridgetown Holdings, too, of which uh, I may or may not have a, a standing limit order on. So I like your pick. Um, I, I will say SPACs overseas, particularly in Southeast Asia, seem to make a lot of sense to me because I suspect they're, they have a, even if you're a screaming company, you probably have a less clear path to an IPO on a major 
um, stock exchange than you would if you were the exact same company in the US. So you have less of the sort of adverse selection issue that you have with uh, companies getting spacked here. Um, And on top of that, uh, the, the, the one point that I'll make on this one, which is why I'm a little, you know, a, a little... It makes me a little queasy to to potentially buy the stock at at twelve bucks. Is any spac that is above ten fifty is meaningfully trading with sort of speculative value on top of the cash. So if you're buying at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and then people just like don't like the the merger, and a lot of people decide to redeem, then it can crash back down to ten dollars. So you're sort of taking speculation risk. Um, in buying the stock, you know, you're buying basically a dollar for a dollar twenty because you feel like well, this person's going to pick such a good company that I'm willing to take, you know, that that twenty percent risk uh, above the principal cash and account. Which you may be saying, I'm like totally down to do because I think they're going to find a great opportunity here. But you know, buyer beware uh, that that is definitely what's happening when you buy a a, a spac above ten bucks. And I have a question on that well, as well, because uh, you're assuming that one, they pick a good company and two, they do it at a good price, right? Because you're, if, if Peter Thiel says, I want to do this and we're buying 5% of the company for the whole SPAC and right. that values it yeah. at $200 billion, yep. that's not a good deal either. People could totally redeem because totally. they don't like the price just as much as if they don't like the company. Yeah. I mean, I've been holding on to Churchill uh, for a couple Churchill weeks. Churchill, what? CCIV? I, I CCIV? Like, what are you? CCIV. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Um, and I just sold a bunch off of the off of the rumors, right? Like, I held on to some, but like, yeah, that, I, don't that know. I, I think there is a lot of that dynamic with with any SPAC, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, sol- should we go to the, pick. the SPAC master himself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will tell you, I thought about picking a SPAC and I ultimately decided not to. Um, fortunately, we've gotten plenty of coverage on that uh, uh, on this call. I decided that uh, what I wanted to do is pick one that I knew super, super well from a bunch of recent research. And if you've listened to our most recent Acquired episode, you know exactly where I'm going with this. My pick is the New York Times company. And... Ooh. This is one wow. I just think Acquired is really talking its own book here. Our last two episodes. <laughs> I, I love it. Part of picking, like part of us deciding to do that episode was, you know, we got a, a, a suggestion from um, listener of the show, sort of super senior finance person. Um, he's been a CFO of public companies and and uh, was like, hey, I think this, this company is really interesting. You should check out the mind safety disclosures piece on it, which was like the principal starting place for at least my research on the analysis. And part of the suggestion to David, hey, we should do this episode. Was like, I want to learn more about this company. Like, I think it, I think there might be something yeah. sort of uh, not only undervalued but sort of undertold here. And one thing we did discover is there's like no audio content on the New York Times. There's a few interesting books out there, but there's like no one who's you can't find mm-hmm. a podcast on the history of the Times. So I was like, oh, this will be cool. We're kind of the, the only one to do it. Anyway, so m- here's my investment case for the New York Times. In the last 15 years, they have shifted from a business that had incredibly high variable costs, so the printing presses, the people that have to you know deliver the paper, um, ink, uh, to a business that is a, a digital subscription business. So it's all fixed costs, and then like Netflix, they sort of get all the upside once they sort of have paid for the the content. Um, obviously, there's things that scale like bandwidth and hosting and all that stuff with the number of audience, but it's pretty minimal. You know, it's a software business, it's high gross margin. And um, 
the uh, the way that they're being valued right now is uh, their market cap is like. I think it's five-ish billion, which is almost exactly the same as it was in their print heyday when they were making more revenue. Uh, but of course, their 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 cost structure um, in in what the 2000s was way worse because it was all these variable costs to actually print and deliver the paper. So what what I think is the right way to look at this company now is to compare them to Netflix. And uh, as I launch into this, let me remind everyone: not investment advice. Do your own research. We may or may not hold positions in the companies we're talking about. But I will say it's very interesting that the ne- the New York Times only has 7 million subscribers or seven and a half. Um, Netflix has over 200 million subscribers. So obviously the, the Netflix has almost 30 times more um, the subscriber base. So you can't really compare apples to apples in terms of like the size of their sort of current business. But what you can compare is the fact that they're both like 15 to 17 bucks a month in terms of the, the average revenue per user. And what the New York Times trades at is about 4.8 times their trailing 12 months revenue, whereas Netflix trades at about 10x their trailing 12 months revenue. And you might say, well, gosh, that's probably because Netflix is growing way faster. It's it's not. Netflix is growing their revenue and their subscribers at about 30% year over year. The New York Times' digital subscription business is growing 40% year over year. Now that that's in subscribers, the actual uh, revenue is trailing because they have a lot of like introductory offers and stuff uh, out right now, which should cause you to have some discount. But should it really be trading at half the sort of revenue multiple of of Netflix? I don't think so. I'll, I'll also say that like the the way that the New York Times gets its content in actually hiring out uh, a team of 1,700 writers instead of licensing content. And of course, Netflix has some original productions. Um, but that seems to also be a much better model to me because they really do own all of their sort of proprietary IP. They don't have any licensing deals and it's diverse. So like no one piece of, no one journalist has too much power, whereas there could be an individual piece of content on on Netflix that would have a lot of power over the bundle. So that's kind of my, my starting place on this one. Um, I think the New York Times, uh, it looks a lot more like Netflix than it does the New York Times of 15 years ago, but I don't think investors are sort of yet looking at it that way. How do you take into account the fact that the replayability of a single piece of Netflix content is so different than a piece of news? Like it feels like the the value of your archive accumulates much more or ex- accumulates differently yeah. at least. And at least I, I would think the archive has considerably more value of Netflix than it does for the New York Times, although there's like probably some element of value there that, I don't know, goes to brand and all those other things too. That's a super valuable point. I think the way that I sort of like accounted for that was, uh, well, it's way cheaper to produce any piece of uh, content for the New York Times than it is for Netflix. And they, I don't know if they cancel each other out, but like, I don't know, both are true. One pulls in Netflix's direction, one pulls in the Times' direction. If you had to pick though, I don't know, at least for me, I would way rather have the one that's more expensive, but like way harder for someone else to produce. Hmm. I think that is a, uh, I think the New York Times has sort of like a hidden moat where no one else is going to be a large scale newspaper at, at this point with the internet. And so like, yeah. it's really hard to catch up to that's Netflix, but it's deceptively hard to catch up to the New York Times. I wonder, like, did you guys 
uh, I haven't finished the episode, full disclosure. That's because it was three hours. Me a longer workout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I only work out for 30 minutes, guys. Um, <laughs> but, um, like, did you guys uncover how much of their content is now video or podcast or, you know, like more digital native in that respect? Video, they do some, but they don't like they're they're still not like a video centric company i think they sort of waited on the sidelines in the uh, the whole pivoting to video phase where vox and buzzfeed and everyone did um yeah, they, they yeah. obviously have some but it's not huge the podcasting thing is crazy like the daily has four million downloads every day or maybe it's four million downloads on wow. every episode it's by far the most listened to yeah. podcast um but the interesting thing is it's since it's free, it's a completely different stream for them. So it's not included in the mm-hmm. subscription bundle. And it's really like a way to expose the Times brand to a completely dem- different demographic demographic of people. It's like 70, 75% or under 40. Um, it's people that, that otherwise wouldn't have a relationship with the Times. They did announce Should- though, right, that they are going to have a paid version of the daily or is uh, some subscription there's some paid podcast thing coming but we don't know what it is yet there's also some paid version of the wire cutter coming that we don't know what it is should that's intriguing should spotify buy the new york times well spotify stocks really high so they should buy something Leading podcast. I was just going to take it another way, which is like, who should, which podcast should the New York Times buy? But I think yours is a more adventurous idea. $8.5 billion market cap. That's like nothing compared to Spotify at this point. They're acquiring podcast content from all over the place. Just acquire somebody who's been acquiring podcast content. And then you have this whole other arm. That's interesting. Let's see if we can get Daniel on this. Yeah, invite him up. <laughs> yeah. Ah, that's a really good point. It's like, the, I think the New York Times has a hard, New York Times will have a hard time acquiring things of scale because frankly, like the Times themselves just don't have that large of a market cap compared to, you know, tech companies today. Um, they, they're, they have cash, but they only recently have cash and they don't have a ton of cash. It's in like the hundreds of millions. Um, and their stock isn't like wildly overvalued. Meanwhile, the rest of, you know, the landscapes is, or at least richly valued and, or fully valued. I can't remember what the phrase we're supposed to use is. So there's like, they, they have to be smart and niche in their acquisitions the way they were with like Autumn or the Wire Cutter, which was a screaming deal, by the way. They bought it for 30 million bucks and it spits yeah, off okay. 50 million a year in cash right now. I'm sorry, it do, does 50 million a year in revenue right now. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, it's a good question. I don't know. I would love to see them be more aggressive with like products. Like New York Times cooking is amazing. Like, what is it? We're, we're seeing all these companies emerge at venture scale, which is like you know making a food social network or like better recipe readers and all of these things. Like, I don't know. It feels like they have one of the best bases of recipes there, and that is uh, a piece of content that has like high replayability, yeah. so to speak. Um, I don't know. Things like that feel like they're big opportunities in and of themselves. I, I well, I am. Uh, um bull a new york times bull and and think it's uh it's potentially undervalued uh i completely agree with you that there have been big execution misses in podcast and all their digital app stuff um and i think they talk about doubling down on these things but they they double down on them modestly and slowly and linearly and not uh you know not the way that a fast-growing tech company would 
Can they just not compete pricing wise with Netflix on documentary content? Like why isn't why aren't the Obamas signed up for with the New York Times instead of with Netflix? I think Netflix uh, is paying a really pretty penny for Barack and Bruce. Just can't can't get close to it. Yeah. I mean, and that's the that that would be the bear case for the Times is like, hey, they're competing with people who also have this very same property, which is uh, who, whoever has the largest audience can pay the most because you can amortize it across the widest set of people. Which is yeah. what's the seven powers of that? That's uh, uh, network uh, scale economies, scale economies, scale economies. Yeah. yeah, they have the the sort of so, scale economies. So, oh, there you go, Mario. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> So, so yeah, that would be the argument of like, look, if the New York Times is actually competing with Netflix or um, Spotify for uh, like non-commodities for unique um, sources of content, then they're up a creek because they're way, 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 way behind on paid subscribers. But to the extent that they're in a different category, then you should be excited because they're running that same playbook, but with a different you know mo- modality of journalism, which I think is still, I think they will forever be a journalism company. So respect. I like it. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll throw, are, are we doing this? Are we going to make an air table and, and, and track? I the think future? So. And I actually had maybe, I mean, dare I pat myself on the back too much? I think I had maybe even a better idea, oh, p- which is, uh, I think we should create a public account where we buy the securities the next day. Oh, and then yeah. people can just see our portfolio. That would be fun, right? Let's do it. Let's it's like it. fantasy right, cool. stock picking, but you actually have to put your money on the line. So it's not really fantasy. And we're not going to get payment for order flow. Now that public doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> what, um, uh, my, my only question, I love the idea, but what about, um, what are we going to do about Bitcoin? We could buy grayscale, uh, uh, but yeah. grayscale, I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's a weird, maybe buy grayscale for now. Yeah. And then, uh, when, um, when Dude, we'll just do it, it in, but when, We'll just do it in Robinhood, and that way we can buy uh, Bitcoin right in Robinhood. Hmm. But can you sh- share your portfolio of Robinhood? Probably uh, not. I don't, I don't know if you can just so. like link yeah. to your I have, portfolio. I have right. a private pick later that might work, but if we wait a couple months. Oh, we'll, oh. all right, great. Okay, okay. Right, let's we'll let's table end. this for for the moment. We're just let's ship it there's over. There's going to be some way that we're going to track this, and then we're going to be able to rib each other later when uh, you know I make stupid picks. Uh, but for now, Packy, what's your pick? Sure. So I, I mean, I like the New York Times, if only because, you know, it, one trillion divided by eight billion is a huge potential multiple. So if we're going with the, the dreams all the way up valuation, <laughs> I really, really love that room to run. But I'm going to just be as on the nose as I possibly can here. We're here tonight in Twitter spaces. I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. I could not be longer Twitter. And so a couple of weeks ago, I when I wrote this about Twitter... A couple of weeks ago when I read about Twitter, my my idea was they were reporting the next day, no idea what was going to happen in the short term. But th- this company has been absolutely asleep for the past five or so years. The stock has totally dragged. And meanwhile, all of us are on this right now at my time, 9.19 p.m. If we weren't doing this spaces talk, I'd be on Twitter anyway. There's this group of people who increasingly <laughs> kind of like control the conversation who are on Twitter all of the time. And yet the stock has done absolutely nothing. Now, obviously over the past year, I think year to date, it's up 
or not year to date over the past year, but like to the day it's up hundred percent. So finally Twitter is moving. It's doubled. It's trading at $57 billion. Facebook for context is in the high six range, uh, seven range, $700 billion. Spotify, range. Spotify is like 65, 68, I think. So it's less than Spotify. Less than Spotify. Mm-hmm. Pinterest is like right. If you're looking at enterprise value, like right neck and neck with it. Snap is double what Twitter is. And I love Snap too. And I love the bold use of investor day to say that we're just going to grow 50% for the next X number of years. Amazing. But Twitter. So the, the thesis there is that finally that narrative is changing. The day after I wrote the piece, Twitter reported pretty good earnings. They beat on revenue. They beat on EPS. They missed a little bit on uh, monetizable daily active users, which is an important number for Twitter. But what I really think is interesting is that they have their they're valued at like 7.6% of what Facebook is. They have about a tenth of the users that Facebook does. They have a lower ARPU than Facebook does. But I think over time, what needs to happen with them is that you view Twitter as kind of Apple and iOS in this war, and you view Facebook as Android, where they have everybody mm-hmm. in the world, they have the less valuable people, they That's have whatever. And Twitter has yeah. 192 million people, a good amount of which are super high value people who you can yeah. monetize yeah. at a high mm-hmm. level. And so we're here tonight on Spaces. That's part of the ecosystem. They bought review. The product needs some work for sure, but that's part of the ecosystem. Twitter, if they wanted to, could pull, no joke, plus out of me a year between subscriptions and revenue shares and all sorts of things. It is the number one tool that I use to grow, not boring. And so I think as they are able to figure out that that's the kind of company that they are, that they need to monetize the shit out of their people who build businesses on top of it and want power tools, want better DMs, want better search, want better ways of connecting with their audience, subscription and payments and all of that stuff in app. I think that's a huge, you know, a huge opportunity for them. It's interesting. Do you, and I th- do you have I any think sense might... that they're doing that? Or are you like activist investor style, like you're building your toehold and you're going to storm in on the board and make them do yeah. that? No. So, I mean, it, it seems like, right, they, the way that they're building spaces is different than kind of what they've done before. They're building in public. Yeah. They're being intentional about it. They're smart. Review being was a smart much idea. Faster. Much faster because they're building on top of Periscope. So they have this like kind of legacy stuff. You can bring back Periscope. I saw somebody using Periscope today. So if you want the video piece of it, you can still bring back video Periscope as like a kind of front and center type of thing where all of a sudden you have this this huge kind of center with a bunch of tools where all the kind of people who are creating content hang out anyway. So I think they're doing it there. They've talked about subscriptions. They've obviously like Professor Galloway has been in their ear about subscriptions in like a kind of dumb way. Um, and but they they <laughs> They've said you hate him so much. I don't. I don't. I don't. I I actually think he's incredible at what he does, and the fact that I'm talking about him right now is like a testament to his thing. His thing working, but. We didn't. We we got to take it aside here. We didn't talk about this on the acquired New York Times episode. I'd really debated it, but I mean, Packy Mario, you guys probably know. Uh, Professor Galloway ran a, what his first like what put him on the map was being an activist shareholder campaign against the New York Times company, and then he got on the board. No way! Yeah. No way! I, I did not know that. I yeah. Fascinating. Well, no, no surprise, I'm uh, a bull pick then on uh, on the Times and taking the other side of uh, Galloway. <laughs> no, this this was like uh, at least ten years ago, I think, okay. if not longer. Yeah, but you know, he's 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 long Twitter. He owns ten million dollars worth. Like the day after in the stock, the day after in the stock popped, he made a million dollars. So like, fuck me. But 
I hope he sent you a bottle of wine. <laughs> send you some, some yeah, Michelle no Schlumberger at least. Uh, for, <laughs> uh, three cases. There we go. There's the plug. Yeah. All right. So, 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 yeah, exactly. so Becky, I have, a, I have a, a question on the um, monetizable daily active users. So a couple of years ago, I think they switched from they were counting MAUs, and that was like pretty flat. Like it was 300, and then like four years later, it was 330, and you were like great guys like okay you you figured out how to make a product for this market and they love it and they they retain but like it's for this effectively niche global market or collective set of niches because i think that's why the best way to describe twitter is it's this like series of niches and uh then they they decided that was no longer the way that they wanted to report their numbers which is always a little fishy when when a company decides oh we shouldn't be reporting this way anymore so they switched to mdow Uh, like how is that how was the MDAO sort of tracked over the last year or so? I haven't really followed. Yeah. So over the past year, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so in the middle of the pandemic, I think it was Q2, they were up 34% year over year after for a while tracking kind of in like the low kind of Facebook percentages, but off a much lower, uh, a much lower base of users. This quarter, they did 26% year over year growth. So assuming they can keep kind of that 26% year over year growth up while improving ARPU, I think that's a win. They're also, and they talked about it in their earnings call recently too, they're really focusing a lot on topics and like that onboarding experience, which has always been their problem, which is if I don't spend 17 hours a day on Twitter and follow the right people and all of that kind of stuff, how do I even experience this app? And so they're focusing a lot on making topics more discoverable. I think stuff like spaces will make things more discoverable. I've, I've seen either mock-ups or actual kind of live things of where there's a topic, a spaces will pop up, pop up on top of that topic. And so it's, mm. Hey, there was a bombing in this place. Let's all hop in a room and talk about it. Oh, interesting. And so I think there's some uh-huh. really interesting things that they're, they're doing there as well. That's yeah. Can I ask? Yeah. Oh, go for it. So, one, I'm 100% with you. Um, I At the beginning of this year, I had like 10 picks for the year. And among them was Bitcoin at 100K plus and Twitter at uh, 70 billion plus. And that was the, they were at 38 when I wrote the piece. So it like, wasn't crazy, but like a good amount. Um, and I, I'm, I the only piece that I feel like in your article, um, I had a question mark over is like, whether Jack is still the right person to lead this. So like that is a big yeah, question. I think convinced I'm, I'm, me. I'm actually going to be, I am actually going to be looking at this with, uh, with Mark Rubenstein this week, a little bit just on like the, oh, cool. how does Jack run Twitter versus square? But if you look at square, mm-hmm. square had this like the same exact thing. It happened a little bit faster, but this like long doldrums where people didn't think they had their shit together and things weren't working out. And they tried some big partnerships with Starbucks and whatever, and it didn't work yeah. out. And then over time, you see these pieces start to come together. So the charitable interpretation of, of Jack is that he's just like incredibly zenned out, is taking an incredibly long view. <laughs> and like all these pieces are finally starting to come together. The less charitable but still fine interpretation is that he is a figurehead that people still can kind of rally behind. And if you're going to make some bold product moves, it's probably better to have him in there than whatever kind of shit professional CEO you bring in from the outside. I think the most important roles for them are on the engineering and the product team and on the the monetization side. And so it seems like, you know, Kayvon's doing a, a good job there and like they're they're you know, building spaces, like I said, in, in the right way. So 
I think as long as those are good and he's kind of this just like face of Twitter, it's a shitty role right now, right? Like you're just going in front of Congress, you're talking about defending your actions with the president, all of that. If he can be sanguine and do all of that stuff and then other people inside are running product and engineering and all of that, then, and we haven't even talked about engineering, but they rebuilt their ad products from the ground up. They seem like they might not actually be terrible anymore, which would be a huge win. So there's just a lot of things going in the right direction and whether that's, because of Jack or because the absence of Jack, just letting people do kind of their thing. It feels like it's finally all coming together and he's the leader. So when it was bad, it was his fault. Now that it's good, his fault also. I will say in, in defense right, of Jack I'm, too, I feel that the, I, yeah, <laughs> he, he's yeah. definitely There's not a good definitely executor, something but. where it feels like they've been, their product velocity has increased. For sure. And, and, yes. and in a variety of areas, like in a variety of areas that's that feel like low hanging fruit that they could have missed, but then woke up to suddenly. I mean, newsletters and, and spaces are two obvious ones to, to your point on like something happened, like a topic and then there being a space for it. Like Twitter, Twitter has long been the town square for certain communities. Like it's been the tech town square for eight, nine years. And yet these little tweets, like they're not actually the best format for a lot of the town square type behavior. And like, I think a lot of the stuff that we're doing here, like Packy, when we did the emergency pod on Slack, like that's the sort of thing you would want in the town square. You want AM radio, you know, you want conversations and, um, you know, fleets was like a half step in that direction. Cause it let me put something out there that felt more, I mean, it was more ephemeral, ephemeral, like my, you know, your tweets are sort of reserved for like, I really feel confident about this. And like, I know yeah. it's, it's not too jokey dripping with snark. Like there's real substance to it. Whereas fleets, I think with this attempt of like, Hey, well it worked for Instagram. So maybe it'll work for us to offer this format too. My opinion is that it didn't, but I like that they tried it. I sure hope they sunset it and then figure out a way to make, uh, uh, what are we doing here? Spaces, sort of spaces. like the the yeah, so you know fill that give void that instead. Real estate, totally. Real estate what, what, why do you like fleets? <laughs> I love fleets. Really, I mean, there's oh, wait, two okay. ways to look at fleets, right? One is as the exact way that you said, which is it, which ties also back into topics. Which is there's some people who are out there and use the product but don't want to tweet. Maybe a fleet's an easier way to do it, and maybe they're coming from Instagram or somewhere else where that's a, a kind of behavior that they're used to and they feel less pressure and all of those types of things. And so if it can increase the amount of people who are actually creating content on the platform, great. The other is they knew Spaces was coming. They wanted to build that bar. They had like a few month mm -hmm. gap and it was pretty mm -hmm. easy to roll out something like Fleets. And so they took that few month gap, threw it up there and knew that Spaces was kind of going to come in and take that real estate anyway. And so they were getting us used to looking up there. Did they start working on spaces you think, you think before it's Clubhouse? Is, or? Is going away? No, probably not. But I, I do think like, you know, even now, if there's a space is going on, that shows up to the left of all the fleets. And yeah. so they're clearly prioritizing yeah. space over fleets. The one thing I hate is when you click on somebody's profile and they have a live fleet and you click on their profile picture and you're like, do you want to do a fleet or do you want to see the profile picture? It's like, dude, this is what mm -hmm. I do when I want to see a profile picture. Get that out of there. But otherwise, I think it's a harmless thing that sits up to the right of spaces and it's fine. Should we make our Supportive. voyage across the, the great capital divide into the into the private markets? Public markets, private markets. What's even the difference these days? It's just a big gradient. So true, man. I love that. Um, yes. Should we do the same order or should it be like snake draft style? Uh, Ooh. I, let, let's keep going in the same order because I can't listen to Packy talk anymore. 
<laughs> I think I think for these we give ourselves like a three minute limit for each because we've just gone over the the hour mark for people. So and and Packy yeah, being that, uh and Miami is uh you know needs to go to bed. No, no, the, yeah, the clubs are they close at midnight here, so I better get there. <laughs> great, great, great. All right, Rosenthal, give us your best three minute private pitch. Can first off, can you guys hear me? Oh, we're having some audio issues with, uh, with David Uh for, for, for our friends at home. Um, we are, uh, this exposes something that we've been doing. We are on a zoom call. So we are dual wielding here with, with zoom and spaces. And we can see that David is trying to express his, uh, incredible value that he has found, but it does not seem to be working. Well, maybe, well, well, do you want to jump well, in? Ben? Well, he tries it. Yeah. Why don't I jump Wait. in and I'll bust I'm up test. our can order you, here. Can you guys hear me on this um, account? I sure hope David doesn't have to leave and come back because I think that it's, would actually close our room if he did that. So, um, Wait, anyway, all right, I'll go. This is me? another required episode, uh, but it's from a little while back and uh, I wanted to, to bring it back up. So my private pick is SpaceX. And this is a company that you might be saying, but Ben, this week they achieved a $74 billion post-money valuation while still private, making it one of the top five most valuable private tech companies in the world. How, how does this really have running room from here? Are you serious? Um, well, here, here's sort of my investment case. The, the other issue with this one is I'm not sure this will ever be a public uh, company based on Elon's luck with Tesla. Uh, if I'm him, I don't know why the heck I would ever take this thing public as long as I can find some way to get my closed-end fund shareholders some liquidity. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious how their sort of like capitalization has has gone in the last decade. I guess they've, they've only really been taking tons of capital in the last decade, but in the last, especially three, four, five years where they Sequoia led their last two rounds, like obviously they do need liquidity at some point. Um, but maybe they figured something out where they, they're like, look, we can, we can sort of stay liquid in this for a long time. Anyway, SpaceX, it's two businesses. The first one is a private launch company. They are a taxi to the stars. They can do that 100 times cheaper per kilogram than we could in the space race. So, you know, think about the, um, you know, we will go to the moon. It costs 100 times more for any given unit of weight than it costs SpaceX. It's like shockingly cheap. It's like $100 million to um, uh, to send a, uh, a, a Falcon 9, a set of cargo up there. So it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, it's really cheap. So that's business number one. They've also gotten like... $10 billion in revenue contracts for that business. So unlike uh, Blue Origin or some of these other companies that uh, have, have um, you know, bootstrapped the company with uh, investor dollars, SpaceX has done a lot of it with customer dollars. So anyway, uh, Taxi to the Stars is, is number one. Business number two it could be way bigger, and this is Starlink. So the way that these manufacturing businesses work is there's a high amount of R&D 
required to get you to sort of minimum viable scale. There's also a high amount of sort of just like mechanical overhead, manufacturing, uh, transportation, the launch pad, things like that. And SpaceX has managed to basically burn through all that with their um, government contracts, with their private contracts, but basically shipping stuff up for people, uh, satellites, you know, um, rovers, things like that. And what that lets them do is then use the the sort of capacity that they have on top of their overhead for quote unquote free to be their own first and best customer. And they have now shipped up over a thousand satellites for Starlink out of the 1400 that they'll require for their initial constellation that will provide high-speed internet access to anyone anywhere on the globe. And to just, I, I know I'm going long, so I'll give you a, a couple quick stats on this. Morgan Stanley, uh, who just upgraded their bull target on the, on uh, SpaceX to $200 billion, um, thinks that they can capture over 360 billion subscribers to Starlink by 2040. So that's like, uh, that's 5% of the global population. Uh, they think that Starlink at that maturity will bring in $21 per month per customer, which is actually a little cheaper than it is today. That's $91 billion a year in revenue to be the ISP for 5% of the globe. And if you don't think that like a company doing that scale or with the potential to do that scale um, is worth, you know, that that, that would be that, that revenue alone would be more than the value that they're they're worth today. I think they have so much room to run. Um, not to mention their whole taxi to the stars business is going to be the thing that gets us to Mars. Like, there's also they're so far ahead. Like at this point, they're they're already serving customers. They already have revenue from Starlink. No one else is going to successfully yeah. chase them and build this constellation. So this dream that everyone has had for decades, you know, these Teledesic, TerraStar, Iridium, GlobalStar, uh, OneWeb, like SpaceX finally achieved it. And I think there's a huge sort of first to scale advantage that they have there. So my my private pick is SpaceX. Love it. Love it. Yeah, no disagreement. <laughs> All right, we got David back. Yeah, can you guys hear me now? Yes. Ooh, oh, you want to jump in? I've been switching between the acquired account and my account trying to get this to work. <laughs> Clearly, Spaces is still a beta product. I um, think you're on you, Spaces team, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, why don't I go next in case I lose uh, talking ability in a, before we wrap up here? Okay, mine is I'm talking my own book. One of my recent angel investments company called Kettle, which uh, diligent acquired listeners might've heard me talk about on the show once or twice before. Um, but uh, it is a reinsurance company for climate change risk. And I am so excited about these guys because one of my, uh, I was going to go through this earlier, but like one of my kind of like five main sort of themes that I, uh, I'm prosecuting in the public and private markets. One is just that like we're seeing, I was in Texas last week, like climate change is impacting everybody's daily life. And like, we are going to need solutions to like, it's happening. There's no, there's not a question of like, of course we want to stop climate change. Of course we want to reverse it, but like it's happening. We need to address it. And, um, so what kettle does, so like primary insurance, like state farm, all state and the like, um, that covers like basic primary risk, your house and stuff like that. But they don't, they aren't really equipped to cover tail risk. So like earthquakes, fires and the like. So what they do is they offload the tail risk stuff to reinsurance companies. That's what 
Kettle does. So they are, and the reinsurance business, the whole insurance business is a actuarial, stochastic, stochiastic model based business based on past data to predict the likelihood of disasters occurring in the future. But obviously with climate change, like look at, look at, uh, oh, we're getting, some listeners are not able to hear me. Are you guys can uh, hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, yeah, hear, yeah, I can you. hear you guys. Okay. Oh, we'll interesting. I, we can hear David, but uh, listeners, uh, do like a thumbs down emoji in the little um, spaces thing uh, if you cannot hear David and it's been dead air this whole time. That would be rough. Let's look for, for some emotes here. Uh, I'm I seeing some peace signs, so I think people have... Give me a thumbs up if yeah. you can hear David. We're yeah. seeing so much peace signs. I'm yeah. loving this. Okay. I, I, I assume peace signs are good and, and laughy faces are good. So I'd say David, yeah. keep, keep going. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up quickly, but, um, the, uh, um, so what kettle does, so like basically the whole industry is based on past data, but obviously that's not going to work with climate, climate change where, you know, in the past hundred years there were, a handful of devastating fires in California, but in the past three years, every year it's happened. So they are built from the ground up with ML based prediction based up primarily on satellite data that they're making predictive oh, risk models. David, I and, just realized something. Uh, people, there is no thumbs down thing. So I think everybody that was the closest we could get to thumbs down were those oh, stop no. and, uh, <laughs> oh man okay oh, no. we, we just had someone okay. leave and, and rejoin uh well this is crazy david david we can hear you um uh, but unfortunately the audience cannot we've oh, we've no, broken dude, twitter oh, no. <laughs> Peggy, are you gonna change your Sorry, public guys. market bull pick based on this uh this yeah. bug that we have found no i love it, I love it. twitter is moving twitter is moving so fast that they're breaking things it's it's like a young <laughs> face bug <laughs> Well, uh, all right. Okay. Anyway, there is well, a seed we... round uh, last fall. You'll hear more about them. Ben, you want to give maybe a quick recap for people who couldn't hear me? Yeah. Yeah. For folks who, who couldn't hear David, um, it is remind me the name of the kettle, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a company called David that David uh, invested in. So he's talking his own book here, but really cool sort of uh, reinsurance company for um basically uh recovery from things like wildfires and things in the this sort of um disaster space that is unfortunately more and more common among us and um kettle helps families who are uh adversely affected by one of those events in a way that traditional insurers sort of haven't because the models haven't been able to um you know the the future looks so much different than the past and the, and the future things that we're insuring against are so much different than um in the past. David, I'm guessing here a little bit since uh, I don't know that much about this company, but I've heard you you talk about them, but I, I hope I just did it enough justice. Yeah, yeah. No, the big thing is they use predictive M they'll build they're built from the ground up with predictive ML models, not stochiastic models like the whole rest of the industry. Awesome. This is so let's, this let's, is gonna be a good reason for folks to listen to the <laughs> listen to the recorded yeah. version to get it from the horse's mouth. Um, I'm I'm gonna if if you're good, I'm gonna jump in with my pick Great. and I'm gonna keep it snappy and and uh, and quick, which is Reddit. Reddit is undervalued like crazy. I did a great piece with Greg I well, Greg did a great job. I won't speak for myself, but I was very proud of the outcome. Um, talking through why that's the case. It's valued at $6 billion. 
you know, daily active users are growing faster than many of the other social platforms we look at um, in the public markets and are valued at 10 times as much. And I kind of think of it sort of similarly to Packy, which is like, you know, Reddit is almost like where Twitter was two years ago or something like that, mm. where they're kind of like finally wandering out of this woods um, and making some really interesting product plays. Um, so I think six billion is a is a steal. I think this is a sixty billion company uh, in you know two years at the most. Um, but yeah, that, that's my my quick pitch. I remember when Sam Altman led the financing round in Reddit in like twenty. 14 or 15 or something, I think personally, I was like, that is a heck of a bet. And also, wow, Sam Altman did very well. <laughs> and uh, it is like, I, I can't, I don't know what he owns because I don't, I'm not looking at PitchBook, nor is it public information, but imagine being a, you know, an individual who led around um, previously in Reddit now is crazy. The true solo capitalist. Packy, <laughs> uh, you want to, you want to bring us home? I will bring us home. I'm going to go incredibly on the nose again. So tonight we're here doing an idea dinner in a public place on Twitter, you know, taking this thing that was kind of uh, something you only about a, a bull on Clubhouse and Twitter simultaneously. Oh, my God. No, no, no. I'm I'm I think that Twitter will eat Clubhouse's lunch over time. <laughs> what I so we're taking one kind of traditional hedge funds institution and opening it up. My private bet is a company that the Not Boring Syndicate invested in at, you know, this was over the summer, so valuations weren't crazy. Um, So, you know, the sub $10 million range, a company called Composer, uh, investcomposer.com. And what they're doing is building a tool that essentially gives regular investors hedge fund kind of quality tools in a drag and drop, no code way. And so the, the way that I can describe this is like, Instead of just saying I'm buying, you know, Twitter, I'm buying the New York Times, I'm buying Bitcoin uh, and I'm buying whatever SPAC Mario recommended. I like Ben's pick a lot better, but I think that we're all kind of smart. So I'm going to put those in. I'm going to wait Ben's Mm -hmm. at 40. I'm going to wait Mario's at 30. I'm going to wait David's at 10 and I'm going to wait Packy's at 20. And then it'll automatically readjust. So it lets you build a regular portfolio, but then gives you the power of automation in the background. And the way that it does it, I think, is really, really interesting. All of this is one input. They they disaggregate all the brokers so that you can execute with any broker. And where their power is is in this logic that they've that they've built um, in the middle that lets you run back tests on strategies and essentially just lets you draw build these really sophisticated portfolios that can adjust in real time with no code. Uh, and so. I, you know, right now in the in the private markets, Robinhood is somewhere between 15 and 30 billion dollars. Public just raised at 1.2 billion dollars. I keep pushing the founder to, to go out and raise because I think there's going to be an absolute fucking feeding frenzy now that I've seen like kind of the alpha alpha of this product. I think there's going to be a feeding frenzy in the markets for this. So I think get in now. There will be a markup uh, at some point this year that I think will be pretty mind blowing. Boom. No one has ever talked their own Love book it. better. Love it, Packy. <laughs> and, and less unabashedly. <laughs> totally. 
I think this, I is, think this, is, this is a night, night guys. I think, think uh, Packy's got to hit the clubs, and, and Rosenthal, Rosenthal hasn't been able to speak for hours, hours now, now, and you know that's got to be killing him. So I think we're going to call it a night. Thanks so much for everyone for joining. Any like we acquired at Acquired FM, we'd appreciate your feedback. Packy, do you have a not boring account, or you just what's your Twitter? I, I am the not boring account. So yeah, at, at Packy M. Any and all feedback, uh, more than welcome. Uh, awesome, and Mario. Uh, I'm Mario D. Mario D. Gabrielli. Uh, I actually don't, uh, really, I actually like don't really like feedback, but well. praise is very welcome. Feel free to give, tell me why I was probably done at several points tonight. But thanks everyone for coming. This was super fun. Yeah, it was. We'll have to do it again. And you know, as long as the spreadsheet doesn't get too embarrassing for for anyone's picks, then we'll have to we'll keep the party going. Amen. Sounds good. Awesome. Later, later, everyone. David sends his regards. David sends his regards. (laughs) 